So we are in a series on encouragement itself this morning, and the reason behind this is we wanted to go back to our year theme, which is poured into. We're encouraging people in this congregation to conscientiously pour into others. Um, if we're going to be a community, a real uh, intertwined, interlaced community, then we've got to get in each other's lives and pour into each other and offer of ourselves to one another. And we started off this year, meaning in the fall, with that theme, and we did a few sermons on that. We're circling back to it now, and in particular, we're focusing in on this idea of encouragement. I've been so um, surprised, in a good way, to see how much of the scriptures are about encouragement. Um, so, for example, when you look in the book of Acts, you will see that when the disciples would go off to another town or they would return, they would say that their reason for going was to encourage the brothers and sisters in that place. They did what they did in order to encourage one another. It was a major part. When you look through uh, the, the New Testament letters, you see encouragement is one of the things that people in the church do for one another on a regular basis. And even when you look back into the Old Testament, you'll see all kinds of examples. And that's where I want to look today as we have our time together to think about one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And in particular, we're going to hone in on the divine encouragement that we oftentimes need directly from God. We've talked a lot about encouraging one another, but sometimes we need encouragement just directly from God. Some of the things that we grapple with cannot be explained, cannot be understood by the people around us, and we need God to meet us in that difficulty and challenge. So would you open up to 1 Kings 19? Uh, 1 Kings 19, if you need a Bible, we'll pass one to you. Just raise your hand. John's got some here he could pass to you, so please don't be shy about that. We'd love for you to take this home with you if you need a Bible. And it's on page 207 in that particular Bible that we hand out. We're going to be looking in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. And uh, let me first tell you just a little bit of the background leading up to this particular text. We have uh, here a pitched battle between two sides for the very soul of the nation of Israel. On the one side, you have the king and the queen. Um, their names are Jezebel, the queen, and Ahab is the king. And they have led Israel down the path of worshiping the wrong god. They're worshiping, worshiping the Baals and the Asherah. And there are all kinds of prophets, 450 prophets for the Baals and 400 for the Asherah worship. And they have led Israel down this idolatrous path. On the other side, you have Elijah, who's a prophet of God. And Elijah is trying to call the people of Israel back. He's battling for their very soul, trying to call them back into worship of the one true God. And the two are against each other. Now, God brings a drought upon the land in order to get the attention of the people. And Elijah is the, the mouthpiece for the declaration of this drought. And its purpose is to bring the people back. And all of the, the, the interaction between these two culminates in what you might remember Mount Carmel, the, 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 the battle on Mount Carmel, which is between the prophets of Baal and the Asherah and uh, between Elijah himself. And in this battle, they both build altars, and then they call upon their God to set the altar offering on fire. And the prophets of Jezebel and Ahab build their altar, and they call upon God, and they dance around the altar, and nothing happens. And then Elijah builds his altar to Yahweh, the true God. 
And he calls upon God after wetting the wood and making it as difficult as possible for the fire to start. And fire comes down from heaven and burns up the altar. And it's a tremendous defeat of the idolaters, of those worshiping Baal and the Asherah. In fact, all those prophets are immediately killed. So it's a great victory. We're, we're starting at a great moment of victory by Elijah, but something happens that sort of changes all that. Look with me in chapter 19. Right after all of that, it says in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, she's going to kill him. Then he, Elijah, was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. His his fathers had tried to call Israel back, and he is now feeling that he's not been successful in doing so, a total failure. Verse 5, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood At the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu 
the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Moholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God, help us to understand what you want to teach us from this beautiful passage today. Now, I've got a couple of thoughts for us to think about all around this main idea of letting God encourage you. The first one is signs of discouragement. How do you know when you're discouraged? Elijah gives us a good example here. And the second part is going to be about the divine means for encouragement. So let's start with the signs of discouragement. What does it mean to be discouraged? What does it look like? And I would say that if you wake up one day and you find yourself in a cave in a far-off land all by yourself, you can be pretty certain you're probably discouraged. That's what happened to Elijah. He, um, he ran away, and he went into a cave. And what's a cave? A cave is somewhere that's far, far from everybody else. Uh, it's hidden. Nobody knows where you are. In that place, there are all kinds of caves that one can hide in. Um, And it's protected, right? Caves only have one entrance. And so you sit with your back to the wall, and you brace yourself, and you can keep watch, and you're in total control when you're in a cave. Now, caves don't have to be physical, right? There can be figurative, metaphorical kinds of caves that we climb into. In fact, I would say that there are cave dwellers all around us, even as we sit here this morning My guess is that many of us, in a figurative sense, are dwelling in a cave. We've we've gone far away in some way from the people that we love, the people that are around us, the people that could help us. And we've hidden ourselves in a place that's protected and and hard to find. Maybe we've uh, taken some of the circumstances with which we are grappling and and hidden them away so nobody knows and nobody, nobody can surprise us. And we're protecting that part of who we are. And in essence, we are like Elijah we find ourselves in a cave. Now, what precipitates this cave dwelling on the part of Elijah is the presence of Jezebel, especially in her threat, but also Ahab and the battle that they've been having with one another. They've been in this pitched battle, this challenge with one another, this interpersonal sort of duel. And over time, it is beginning to wear Elijah down, such that even at the moment where he... Uh, gains a tremendous victory, he finds that it's not enough and just the simplest threat from Jezebel causes him to flee and throw up his hands altogether and sort of say, it's over, there's no hope, there's no chance, there's no possibility. And, And maybe some of us can relate on this level to our own tendency to hide in caves. It comes when we're locked in a pitch battle with a circumstance or a person And we just can't seem to overcome. And day in and day out, it begins to wear down on us. And what characterizes the cave is three things, at least, and many things, but three I want to pull out. The exhaustion of Elijah, the disappointment of Elijah, 
and the isolation of Elijah. That's what it really means to live in a cave, is to be exhausted, to be disappointed, and to be isolated. Exhaustion. Elijah is tired and hungry. He's physically exhausted. And I hadn't really noticed this before, but you look back, you know, there's 400 prof- 450 prophets of Baal and 450 other pro- 400 other prophets, and they're setting up their altar, and they've got all these, these prophets to help do the job. Elijah toils all alone, it seems. He has to put the 12 stones to rebuild the altar to, altar to Yahweh, and then he has to get all the wood chopped up and burnt, and then he has to go slaughter a bull and take care of all of that. And, and put that on top. And then, just to make sure we all know that it's really God who did this, he digs a trench all the way around the altar and then has water brought and has the wood soaked in water multiple times. He's physically exhausted. He's been doing hard, hard work. And one of the things for us to recognize in life is that a portion of our discouragement is often attributable to physical exhaustion. Sometimes it seems like the world is lost and everything's gone to pot and really what's wrong is you need a nap or you need to eat some food. There is an element. Our bodies are connected. They're intertwined. Our soul is intertwined with our body and so there's a part of our discouragement that's connected to physical exhaustion. I learned this uh, a number of years ago. I would preach on Sunday, two sermons, and I would go home and just crash. In fact, I almost planted a broom tree in my backyard just so I could go lie down under it every Sunday afternoon. But what I realized is that I was getting up early in the morning, and so from before 6 a.m. until 1 p.m., I was not drinking anything or eating anything, and I was expending a significant amount of energy. So here was my brilliant stroke. I started bringing a bottle of water with me to church and a cliff bar. And my sense of discouragement was cutting maybe a half or a third afterwards just by taking care of the physical need. And so off the top, we just say, look, part of our discouragement is because we're tired or we're hungry. Or we're not getting the physical needs met that we need to get met. And we'll talk about the solution to that in a minute. But another portion here goes a little bit deeper than the physical, and that is to the spiritual. The exhaustion that Elijah is feeling is a result also of the spiritual. He is in the midst of a spiritual battle. And I think of the cross, and I think of how we often talk about Jesus on that cross, offering himself as an atoning sacrifice. The thing that was worst about the cross was not the physical pain though it was tremendous and perhaps as great as any physical pain there could be. The worst part, the most difficult part about the cross was the spiritual pain, the separation from God as Jesus Christ received the wrath of God into himself. He bore that wrath so that we wouldn't have to, taking into himself all of it because of our sin. That was the, by far and away, the worst part of the cross was for Jesus to experience that spiritual separation from his Father. And you and I, as, as followers of Christ, or those who are exploring, following Christ, we have all of the daily kinds of physical struggles that everybody in this world has. But if we've crossed over the line and we've given ourselves to Jesus Christ, if we've decided to follow Jesus like we sang in the song, 
then there's another element that's true too, and that is that we are in a spiritual battle each and every day because we're living in enemy territory. And sometimes we forget that reality. And the forgetting of it contributes to our sense of discouragement because we, we don't have eyes to realize what is going on around us. That, we're, that, that, that what's happening to us is much greater than what can be seen. It's happening in the realm of the spiritual. And so there should be no surprise if at times we feel much like Elijah in his exhaustion as he is expressed in the physical and the spiritual. But living in a cave is not just about being exhausted physically and spiritually. It's also about disappointment. Elijah's had this incredible triumph. And I wonder if he came down from Mount Carmel and he thought, oh, we killed him. It was over. We just, I mean, it, go back and read. It, it reads like a football game on Mount Carmel. I mean, there's taunting back and forth between the prophets and, and, and Elijah. And the victory is astounding. And, and Elijah says, you know, just to make sure we're all clear about who's the most powerful, let me just wet down the wood a few times so that God can show you that even wet wood he can set on fire whereas the prophets of Baal have no luck and they start cutting themselves and, and Elijah says, he wonders aloud, well, maybe your God's in the restroom, right? So there's this taunting going back and forth between them. And, uh, and Elijah wins. He comes down from the mountain. You think it'd be like winning the Super Bowl, right? There's this tremendous excitement and enthusiasm. And the moment he gets down, there's this threat against his life. And it's almost like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's too much for him, and he just throws up his hands and runs into the wilderness. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Now, Elijah seems to have lost touch a little bit with reality here. In fact, in multiple places in this story, he talks about being the only one left. But we know that's not true. Obadiah has hidden a hundred faithful prophets in caves. Elijah's not alone. Obadiah himself has remained faithful to God. Elijah is not alone. But but in his distorted view of reality, he begins to feel like he's totally alone. And he's hiding out in the cave, and the voices in his head are reinforcing this distorted reality. Um, I think of the, the fun house at the fair with the warped mirrors. And you look in the mirrors, and you, you see a distorted image. And when Elijah looks at his life, he sees distortion. Isn't this the way, in the moments when you feel disappointment and deep discouragement, we have this tendency to make these global statements about everything we've ever done and every person we've ever tried to help and to say that it was all a loss, all a failure, nothing, I'm just like my father's, empty-handed. Nothing I've done has made a difference. We think about our work, we think about our family, we think about our relationships, and we make these global statements about our failure and the vanity of it all, and we're in the cave, and our voice echoes off the walls of the cave and bounces around in our heads, and we begin to believe 
more and more what we're saying, even though it's distorted from the truth. And that's what Elijah is sitting in, his disappointment. We'll come back to that. The third characterization, the third part of the cave is the isolation. Elijah says in twice, he says, I, even I only am left, which we know is not true. But in his distorted view of things, that's what it appears to him. And this is the piece that sort of seals our cave-dwelling existence. When we, when we get to that place where we feel so isolated that we can't reach out to anybody else, that nobody can speak into our lives, and we're in the cave, and the only voice that's piercing the silence is our own. And it's distorted. It's disconnected from reality. And we're in this echo chamber. I was thinking about why is it that we become so hard to reach when we're in the cave? Why, why is it so hard for us to reach out when we're in the cave? And I was reflecting on the, my own personal moments in the cave. And, 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 and there are all kinds of reasons why it becomes difficult to, to reach out through the isolation. But things like embarrassment. You know, I think about why I'm in the circumstance that I mean, how did I get there? Maybe it was some stupid decision that I made or some failure or some sin in my life. And so I'm embarrassed to reach out and say, look, friends, I'm in a cave right now. Or I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of what they'll think because maybe they had an image of me that was different from what really is going on in my life. And so I'm ashamed to reach out and ask for help. And, and maybe you've experienced that embarrassment or shame before. Sometimes we don't reach out because our circumstances are so deeply complicated that we find it just overwhelming enough to try to describe to anybody else. In fact, we can't even get our minds around it. The sands are shifting so rapidly from day to day. The circumstances are going through such, such variation that we don't even know where to begin if we were to try to explain what's going on in our lives to the people around us. And we're overwhelmed by the complication and we're tired. We're tired of talking about it. We're tired of hearing our own whining and complaining and we're thinking, I don't want to burden these people that I love with my problems anymore. And so we stuff it. We, we go back into the cave. We hang on in there and just white knuckle our way. And sometimes we've been hurt when we have come try to venture. We stick our, stick our toe out. We look out of the cave. We say, hey, anybody out there? And we, we try to say, this is, this is what I'm going through. And somebody says something really stupid in response. And a flood of shame or embarrassment or anger comes in. And we seal off and we say, that's it. I'm not sharing anymore. Bad advice. Insensitivity. You didn't listen to me. I've already tried what you said. It didn't work. So we hide back in the cave. And we contribute to the sense of isolation that all cave dwellers experience. And if this goes on, and as it goes on, we sink into this moment that Elijah has sunk into, where he says, now, can I just die? Can you just take my life away, Lord? He's at the lowest of the low. At the utter breaking point. 
I don't know if everybody gets to that moment at some time in their life. I, I don't know how to answer that. Maybe there's a few people who, who either by personality, you know, tend to always look on the bright side and, and never would go to that place. Or maybe they're just not addressing the hard things in their lives. I, I, I don't know if everybody gets there, but I can say that, that I do. I just want to say that to give us, to give those of us who've been here permission to be real about where we've actually been. And not just me, people that I respect greatly get to this place. One of my favorite pastors is Charles Spurgeon. and Tremendous ministry. Just You look from the outside, he seemed to go from victory to victory and thousands of people coming to Christ. Like every time he preached, you know, a hundred people would come to Christ. And on the inside, he was often caving in. He was broken from exhaustion and isolation and disappointment. When he was young, starting off, there was a, a stampede in his church and multiple people were killed. And he never shook it. He always felt somehow responsible for the rest of his life. And when I was in one of the darkest places in, in my ministry, early in the early days of this church, I, I discovered Spurgeon's writings on his own suffering. And he gave me some language that I still come back to and has been so helpful to me in moments like these that Elijah is experiencing. He said of depression or discouragement, all of my efforts to defeat it were like boxing the mist. And sometimes when we're in this darkness and we're, we're swinging to get out and every effort, every attempt we make results in nothing. It feels like boxing the mist. Imagine boxing the mist. You cannot do it. This is why we need help from the outside. And this is what's so precious to me about the story of Elijah. Because right in the midst of the mist and the boxing, and the stupor of sleep, and waiting, and exhaustion, and disappointment, comes this voice from heaven. It says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Two times the voice comes. What are you doing here? I think of the Garden of Eden when the Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit. What, what, is, what does God say? Where are you? Where are you? See, this little question that God asks is a beautiful statement about his character. He's a God who pursues Broken people. People who are living in caves, exhausted and isolated and discouraged. He's a God who pursues people like you and me. What are you, what are you doing here? And then he enters in. And he brings his divine means of encouragement 
And the first we've seen already is just simply food and rest. Yes. Food and rest comes from God. And it's the first part. It's the first means that He uses to to heal us. And some of us feel like life is is, is a disaster when we just need a nap. Or we need to go out and eat at one of these nice restaurants up on Solano Avenue. Take in a good meal and be rejuvenated and strengthened. Psalm 4, 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 23, 1 through 2. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Psalm 127, 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Proverbs 3.24, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. There's a theology of sleep. We could make a theology of food as well. God provides rest and nourishment. But he goes one step further. He provides us graciously with his presence. And this is, this is one of my favorite <clears throat> elements in the story. You've got to imagine Elijah is in the cave. He doesn't want to be around anybody. He doesn't want to see anybody. He's scared. He's fearing for his life. So God comes in an earthquake and a storm and all of that. Wait, but no, he doesn't. Elijah seems to come out, and then there's the rocks falling and the earthquake and the thunder, and he retreats back into the cave and hides himself. God has shown himself. This is Mount Sinai, by the way. This is the same place where the Ten Commandments came from. We know all the craziness that surrounded that. God continues to come in that way in those moments. But in this moment, for Elijah, after all of that craziness and earthquake and rocks falling and fire, it's a low whisper. And it's as if He's beckoning Elijah to come out of the cave. And so Elijah wraps himself in the cloak and he moves hesitantly outward to the front of the cave. You see him looking this way and that. And he hears the voice of God. And the voice begins to restore Elijah. says very clearly that the word of the Lord came to him. And that's how he experienced the presence of God. Now, the holy grail of spiritual people is to hear the voice of God, right? We all want to hear the whisper of God. And we're waiting for him to speak out of the darkness into our lives. And we all, you hear people's testimonies, well, this is the one time in my life when God spoke audibly to me, you know. That's sort of the holy grail of the presence of God in our lives. But I don't think God wanted us to be living in this sort of perpetual mystery, waiting for that whisper. In fact, I know he didn't because he actually gave us his word right here so that there doesn't have to be so much mystery 
surrounding it so that it can be on our nightstand there present for us at every moment when we're in the cave and we need to hear the voice of God, we need the presence of God, we can pick this up and begin to read these amazing stories about people like Elijah who've experienced exactly what we're going through. And in that, we hear the voice of God. Do you have a Bible on your nightstand? Are you drinking in the Psalms? I couldn't sleep the other night. I pulled off my Bible on the nightstand. I read Psalm 17. It's about how you'll sleep, and when you wake up in the morning, God's presence will be satisfaction enough. And I went to sleep with that circulating in my mind. And I woke up finally in the morning, and that same verse was still on the tip of my tongue. And I rested in the presence of God. You see, this is the word of God as it works in our souls. And it's not some mysterious thing that you have to wait for God who might someday bring it to you. He's given it all to us right here. We just need to soak in it more so that we sense his presence. And out of that, he gives more encouragement to Elijah by giving him direction. It doesn't say how God responds to Elijah's complaints about being the only one, which isn't really true. Maybe he just nods. But he tells Elijah in verse 15 to go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And he gives him very clear direction as to what will happen Next, and for those of us who walk with God, we need to cultivate this garden of direction from on high. And we've talked about this before, and, and there's not really time today to go into it, but if you'd put up the next slide, if we're seeking direction from God, there are at least four elements of God's guidance that are so often a part of the process. A deep and abiding prayer life Um, reading the scripture, keeping it on your nightstand, soaking in it day and night, counsel from wise people. I fear that too many of us are reaching across the cubicle to so-and-so whose life is in a shambles and asking them to give us wise counsel. We need to find those people who are godly examples and submit our problems to them so they can speak into them. And then there's an element of God's leading that has to do with the prompting and the call of God on our lives. And that's the last one, the prompting. But if it's in a constellation of these others, in the the garden of these others, then we we can allow God to speak to us in that way. And I just have to say, maybe you've experienced this too. It seems in life, there's always a greater challenge than the one that you're currently experiencing. And that challenge tests your faith a little bit more. Because maybe you had enough faith to get through the last one, but is God big enough for this next one? And the crazy thing is I keep finding the answer is yes. Every single time. He's big enough for the next one. We tire of trusting in God. But he doesn't tire of being trusted in. Nor does he tire in his strength to meet the need that we're facing. 
And so there's this endless well of resource. And that's what Elijah forgot. He came down from the mountain. He thought, oh, that was the best God could do. No more. God expended all his energy on Mount Carmel. Guess what? He had not. Elijah forgot. God always has more to give. And the giving comes in the form of people. Verse 16. Actually, verse 15. You shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So I'm going to bring this help for you. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. I'm going to bring this help for you. And Elisha, all the, the son of Shaphat of Abelimola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. I'm even going to duplicate you, Elijah. And yet I will leave, if that's not enough, 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. I'll just give you an extra 7,000 on top of that to make sure you're covered. Which is the fourth means of encouragement, which is community. When we're in the cave, there's no help because we can't reach out. There's no one to reach to. We come out of the cave and we put ourselves in God's target so that he can begin to bring the resources that we so desperately need. And God has brought the resources already. It strikes me that in this church community, already residing in our midst are the resources that are needed for each and every person. It's a question of trusting God to reveal who it is. Who is that person that's going to speak into your life? Who is that person that's going to come alongside of you? Who is that person that's going to pour into you? Again, we come back to that. That's what it's all about. It's all about being the kind of person that's willing to take direction from God to pour into those who have need. Because every single one of you has something to pour into somebody else. That's what the Bible teaches. We've all been given gifts from God. And it's, it's about looking for that person in the community of faith, who's going to pour into us. And in that way, God brings our Hezael and our Jehu and our Elisha and our 7,000 so that we don't have to keep dwelling in the cave. We can come out and experience the encouragement that God has. Lord, would you encourage each of us here today deeply in our inner being? Would you take care of our physical needs? Give us vision for how to be restored and renewed in our bodies. Give us vision for the battlefield, to know that we're in a spiritual battle and help us to see around the corners and to have deep insight to pray on the armor that you give us in Jesus Christ, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and uh, all the different elements of that. Would you just put those on us in fullness that we might enter into this field? Would you, would you fill us with your presence through your word? Would you give us direction as we have need? Help us never to think that we've gone down a cul-de-sac so far and secluded that you don't know the way out. And bring the people around us that we need, the community that will support us, and sustain us. And by these means, demonstrate your glory and your power as you encourage the discouraged, as you bring the cave dwellers out of the cave for the great, tremendous work that you have for every single one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.